A Manifesto for Hope, an introduction. Many of our government-funded systems are failing the most vulnerable and disadvantaged. At the same time, we're sidelining our greatest national asset, local people. We have a stark choice to keep pouring money into policies we know aren't working or to invest in new and better ways that really improve people's lives. We need a radical reset, one that empowers local charities, grassroots movements and faith groups in a more imaginative, less bureaucratic, more collaborative approach to community development. I'm Steve Chalk. My book, A Manifesto for Hope, sets out 10 tried and tested practical principles for how to develop joined up, cost-effective, community-empowering work, each gleaned from the hard-won experience that has sat at the heart of my work over the last four decades. It culminates in a call for a new social covenant, one that will transform the life chances of countless young people and families. It's time to reimagine. It's time for a manifesto for hope. An introduction to my book and this podcast series with my guest and expert witness, Sir Stephen Timms, MP for East Ham and the chair of the Work and Pensions Select Committee. I really enjoyed this conversation because I'm inspired by Stephen, by his service across the years through his parliamentary career in government and in opposition. And even more than that, by what I know of him as a man and his love and commitment to ordinary people, not just his constituents, his parishioners, but to people like me. Stephen is the real deal. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Pleased to be here. Well, I'm really pleased you're here. It's fantastic you found time, very kind that you found time to come in and talk. In the introduction to my book, I tell the story of what happened on December the 1st, 1942, when a hitherto relatively unknown man in his mid-60s walked up Downing Street and delivered a report with an extraordinary name. It was called the Report of the Interdepartmental Committee on Social Insurance and Allied Services. It was an extraordinary government report because over the next... Uh, year, just in the UK, it sold more than 600,000 copies. It also sold many abroad as well. It was translated into 22 other languages around the world. It was 300 pages long, but they say, Stephen, you may know this, that people would sit on buses and tube trains just reading the thing, ordinary people buying a government report and reading it in that way. It's much better known by the surname of the man who delivered it, William Beveridge, the Beveridge Report. And the Beveridge Report, as I don't need to tell you, became, became the instrument that brought about a revolution. Mm. It was the beginning of a revolution, a revolution that created hope for so many people who mm. felt until then locked out. Now, of course, 1942, December 42, was partway through the Second World War as the tide, perhaps, a little bit was beginning to turn. And it was in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, that Clement Attlee's Labour government began putting in place the things that Beveridge had talked about. 
Beveridge, of course, had said that his goal was to do war, fight battle with these five great giant evils, as he called them, idleness and ignorance and disease and squalor and want. He was driven by this intense sense of social justice. And so his ideas ranged, the things that we've become very familiar with now, a social security suggested a benefit system for the first time, benefits for people that were sick or unemployed or retired and widowed, and allowances to be given to young, to assist young families, all extraordinary stuff at the time. And then he said all this would be funded by employers, but it would be overseen by the state because the state had a responsibility to create this kind of levelling up, to use a kind of very, very kind of in phrase that nobody had thought of then, but they understood what it meant, and that there would be contributions from those who were in employment themselves to create this sense of equality, this goal of full employment that was something that made them rush out and buy copies of this book. And, of course, the crowning joy and glory of all of this was what he called a national health service, which eventually came into being on July the 5th, well-known date, 1948. His critics, as you probably know, said it would all cost too much. And in actual fact, when he first presented his ideas to Winston Churchill's national coalition government in the there were lots of people who said this is impossible it's it's too much of a revolution it's stretching too far but what he came back with if we do this it will work economically for us we'll have a healthier society a more hard-working a more motivated society and british goods you know that they will sell and sell and sell it's a and it's really worth the investment but even before the NHS began, as Atlas government got things up and running, Beveridge went back with another report. Actually, it was the third report he produced, but it was another report after his famous report. And this third report, this report that was produced in 1946, two years before the NHS was introduced, basically said it won't work. It's fatally flawed. It won't work. In fact, here's this wonderful quote from Beveridge who said, it did make me faint when I heard that all of this would be delivered by civil servants, by professionals, because what this third report said was what I'd seen was a partnership, an important partnership where both government locally, nationally, and the voluntary services, voluntary agencies work together this is the only way it will work. And and I think he was saying it's the only way you'll get ownership into the whole thing. But for all sorts of reasons, that wasn't taken up. One, because, as everybody says, no one was listening because everybody was so, you know, so keen on what they were, they were going to get that they didn't want this message watered down. And government distrusted the voluntary service because they said they'd be too emotionally involved and wouldn't be able to take, if you you like, uh, the helicopter view of things. They couldn't be objective enough and they'd be caught up. You needed professionals who would be professional and more objective about all of this. Of course, as you know, the, the health service was soon overwhelmed simply because 
far more people came forward than were expecting. I'm sure you know this. So, so what was discovered in the first days of the opening of the NHS is the queues were massive. You may have even seen films of it because what was happening hitherto was that mums and mums especially and sometimes dads were getting on with their own illnesses because they wanted to save their cash for their for their children but now they could get free dentures so they rushed for there was a run on dentures i'm sure you know everybody want do all my teeth at once and um it was only wasn't it 24 months later when Bevan, who was the health secretary, who'd introduced the NHS, had to come to Parliament to answer our questions about why this was costing so much and was overstretched. And then a year later, he resigned along with Harold Wilson, who was a young minister then, later to be the prime minister, simply because there was now a giant prescription charge on, on dentures <laughs> and on, on glasses and from that point on, prescription charges have been increased and increased. By the 70s, of course, as the post-war boom faded and economic hardship really began to grind in again, the questions started to be asked then about how long can the National Health Service last and will it last and what do we do about it? And the gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider and wider. And um, as I say later in my book... In 2010, leaping on from the 70s, you know, another 40 years, Sir Michael Marmot was asked to write a report about how we produce a fairer society. In fact, I think that was part of its title, wasn't it, about health and a fairer society. And he came back and he said, his findings were, the gap is huge, life expectancy gap is huge between the richest and the poorest, and what you have to do is empower ordinary people to work with the statutory services and with, with government, put them, put them in power. Now, it's no surprise to me that he, I think his report was uh, Jan, Feb 2010, David Cameron's coalition government came to power that summer and the first thing David Cameron did was announce the big society. We're going to empower local people. Britain's made up of lots of local communities, your square mile, all the rest of it. But it faded and it failed and it failed, everybody would say, including those who were involved, because still power wasn't somehow given to the people. So you didn't get partnership. And I'm not involved in something. I just kind of sit there and watch. And then... 2020, Marmot was asked to write another report, a 10-year follow-up, in which he said it's got worse. The gap between the rich and the poor has got a lot wider than it used to be, and we still haven't empowered local people. In fact, even in uh, COVID, Boris Johnson asked Danny Kruger to do a report as to how you, how you got society moving. And Danny Kruger said, empower the people. We're the most centralised government in Western Europe, developed Europe. We have to empower people. So was it all a huge mistake? My book says, I, my position is, you may agree or disagree with this, it was a huge mistake. Not because... The National Health Service isn't a treasure, but because it's been the victim of its own success, really. You know, when, when the National Health Service was introduced, they could give you dentures, they could give you penicillin, et cetera, et cetera. But most people died a few years after retirement, and that, you know, that was the medicine they could get. Heart transplants and IVF and gene therapy, et cetera, et cetera, 
wait, you know, these, these conditions you can live with for decades. Diabetes actually wasn't even a term. And yet now, six out of every 10 people the NHS treats have a diabetes issue. Mm-hmm. So we live, in a, we live in a different world. And what I'm saying in the book is, if we're going to cope with all of this, we need a new level of partnership between the voluntary sector, ordinary people. Voluntary sector just means ordinary people and government. Well, Stephen, you are government. You've been in the Treasury. I have. You now head up all the thinking around work and pensions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think you've written a very interesting book and I think there is a great deal in the principles you've set out. Um, but I don't myself think the NHS was a mistake. Um, and I think we ought to just make the point, you know, it's 75 years old, the NHS, as you've said. It, it, it's not that long ago that people were saying that the NHS was like a kind of national religion mm. at the opening ceremony for the Olympic Games. Yes, they celebrated mm. the NHS as the kind of archetypally mm. British service that we were all proud of. Mm. And so... I certainly don't think the NHS was a mistake and I'm hesitant about signing up to the view that we ought to reorganise it all because mm-hmm. we've had endless reorganisation yes. of the NHS, which I think very often have made things worse rather than better. Where I do agree with you very strongly, though, is in the scope for working together between the NHS and I'd point to some other public services where I think this is very much the case as well, and the voluntary sector, faith-based organisations, where I think we could create very substantial improvements. So my committee is the Work and Pensions Select Committee. We scrutinise what the Department for Work and Pensions does. And in that department, there's a very good example, I think, of a large and successful bureaucracy, which is the system that hands out social security benefits. In the pandemic, suddenly hundreds of thousands of people needed universal credit and the universal credit computer system dealt with that with very little difficulty and it get it got urgently needed help to a very large number of people in a pretty impressive way. There are lots of aspects of universal credit which people very understandably criticise, but the efficiency of handing out the support through that system was very impressive. And that's a good example, I think, of a large state centralised bureaucracy which delivered on that particular task. There are lots of other things that we look at in the Work and Pension Select Committee, where I think the the case you're making is a very powerful one. And most obviously, that is the case when we're thinking about how to support unemployed people into work. We've tended to go for nationally commissioned employment support services. There was a thing called the Work Programme 10 or so years ago. There's been more recent equivalent versions. And I think there's a very strong case for saying we should devolve the commissioning of such services to a much more localised level. And one of the advantages of doing that would be that you could then involve local voluntary sector organisations, faith-based groups to provide support for people. Because what what you have to do there is understand what the individual person you're trying to help needs, what's really going to help them... And you can't work that out in Whitehall. Mm. 
you can do it on a much more localized basis. And there are good examples of that having been done. But I think the, the other point about going for a more localized approach to that is that if you if you organize it more locally, you can involve, yes, voluntary sector support organizations, but you can involve local colleges. You can involve the local health service where it's a mental health problem, for example, you need the NHS to be involved. And you again, you can't organize that from Whitehall. I, I tried it. I used to have discussions when I was the Minister of Employment with David Lammy, who was the skills minister. And he, David and I always agreed what needed to be done and nothing happened at all. You can't do it in Whitehall. It's got to be much more local. And I, for a number of the reasons that you've set out in the book, I think. So my view of the NHS is it's something that is immensely valuable and it's something that we need to fight to keep. Yep. I don't have a negative view of the role of the NHS at all. What I'm saying is that the man who conceptualised the thing just said, you're off on slightly the wrong track. And because you're off on the slightly the wrong track, it's going to catch up with you and it's going to hurt you. In actual fact, again, as I'm sure you know, there's this thing that is talked about incessantly within health, the wider determinants of health. I say in my book later, but I say this often because I do quite a lot of training for NHS leaders around the country. I've been doing that for the last, getting on for the last decade I say that, in my view, the NHS is wrongly named. It's not a national health service at all. It's a national sickness service. And in actual fact, the NHS's own research and research from the United Nations says exactly the same thing. The wider determinants of health show that about 20%, this is what they always say, you probably know this, 20% of your health, your health, our health, the community's health, the nation's health, has to do with what we call the health services, primary care and acute care. So 20% of your health and my health, Stephen, has to do with, do I have access to the GP's primary care? And when I have access, do I get a good service? Is it worth going? And another 10%, that's 10%, another 10%, the same is true of the local hospital. Do I have access to it? And if I go, is it helpful? And that's 20% of your health. The NHS itself says that the other 80% of your health, the wider determinants of your health, are to do with things that have got nothing whatsoever to do with the NHS. Put simply, when do you go to the GPs or the hospital when you're sick? It's a national sickness service to regain health. But for the other 80% of your health, to make you healthy, to keep you healthy, has to do with the environment where you live mm. and the environment when you, where you work. A huge section of it has to do with your education. Mm. Education, which leads to your earning capacity, which leads to the kind of community you live in, which leads to, in many ways, the health of your relationships. A lot of it has to do with your sexual health and your nutrition and your fitness and your community and your friendships and family support. And that 80% together is what makes us healthy and keeps us healthy. When it all goes a little bit wrong, we go down to the GPs. Uh, one of my daughters is a GP and she tells me this on an anecdotal note all the time. But statistically, I think, the NHS uh, says that getting on for 70% of the people that attend a GPs have nothing biomedically wrong with them. Mm -hmm. They're lonely. Mm -hmm. 
They're depressed. Mm. They want a friend. Mm. They've gone to find to find help because they're not employed, mm. because they they live in a damp flat, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. Their relationships are broken down. And so what I'm saying is that, put bluntly, we cannot afford to carry on in this direction. Here, where I live, central London, it's really hard to get a GP's appointment. And when you do, it's only for 10 minutes. I, I remember the time when I actually knew a GP, but you just get who you get. And most of them are on supply. It's because the system is overwhelmed. That's what I'm arguing. Well, that, that I think is true. But, you know, 2010, the level of public confidence in the National Health Service was the highest it's ever been. So I, I, I don't agree that it was, you know, within a couple of years of starting, it was clearly in trouble. It's enjoyed huge support and confidence yes. from the public for a very long time. I, as you'd expect, I have a number of criticisms of the way it's been managed since 2010. And I think those things need to be put right. And then we could be a bit more hopeful. But alongside mm. that, I think we do need the kind of partnerships that you're talking mm. about. I mean, there's certainly a very close connection between being out of work and your mental health. And there's lots of evidence showing that people who've been out of work for a long time who get a job can enjoy a dramatic improvement mm. in their health simply as a result of being in work and all the benefits that mm. come from mm. the, the social benefits, the financial benefits mm. of of being in employment. These things are, are very connected. And um, one thing that I'm interested in in your book is your reference to faith-based organisations as being among the partners here. I chair in Parliament the all-party parliamentary group on faith and society, and we've been going since 2012, wanting to help celebrate the contributions that faith groups and faith-based organisations are making in their communities up and down the country. And we, as we started talking to these groups from 2012 onwards, we quickly discovered there was a big problem frequently in their relationships with their local council. Mm. That the councils think, mm, well, these people are probably only really interested in trying to convert people, or if they are wanting to provide a service, it'll probably be biased in favour of members of their group mm. in, at the expense of others. And, you know, insofar as there is evidence about these things, those problems don't really occur in practice, I think, but they could do. Mm. And there are people around, like the National Secular Society, who are keen to whip up, whip up anxiety about such things. So we thought it would be a good idea taking a leaf out of your book with mm. your FaithWorks charter from the early yeah. 2000s, was it? You came up with that? Yeah. I, think, I think I wrote that just before the 97 election. Oh, as early as that, yeah, was it? Yeah. Right, OK. I okay. wrote it... I wrote it one um, half-term holiday when all our kids were young and the youngest of our children is 34 now. Right, so. <laughs> right. Okay, okay. So it's some time ago. But we knew about it in our mm. group. Uh, and we came up, and actually it was David Lammy came up with the idea of us drawing up what we call a faith covenant. Yes. Just half a dozen principles for faith groups to sign up to if they want to work with their local council and equally for local councils to sign up to if they want to work with faith mm. groups in their area. And we launched it in Birmingham in December 2014. We've made reasonable progress. We reckon that now about 5 million people live mm. in areas 
where the local council has signed up to our faith covenant. But, you know, we haven't, we haven't taken over the world. But then come the pandemic, suddenly every council was working with faith groups and faith-based yes. organisations because it turned out that they had uniquely the motivation and the capacity to do the job mm. that was needed when lockdown hit. And I'm hoping that more widely we'll learn the lessons from that. And the councils have had a really positive experience to yeah, their yeah. surprise, I think, yeah, yeah. working with these all yeah, these yeah. groups. In actual fact, a strange thing happened to me because the local council where I live and in one of the communities Oasis works in, they sent me as the founder of Oasis this document that you put there and they said, we can only continue working with you if you sign it. And I know them pretty well. I wrote back to them and said, not only can I sign it, I wrote about 80% of it, <laughs> you know, Indeed. back in the 90s. Indeed. So, so you know, that I think that's, that's really very important. I would argue, I'm a Baptist minister, aren't I? I'd argue that you get more bang for your buck if you work with people who are highly motivated yeah. and yeah. Um, people of faith are highly motivated. They, are. they they march towards a goal. They've got a true north. They want to serve. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's how you get more out of it, don't yeah. you? Yeah. I think there's a wider thing without kind of taking us down a rabbit hole here. One of the things I can never understand, Stephen, is why then doesn't the whole of government work with the voluntary sector more? Because I find all the time, you, you know, what, I don't want to name any big companies, but this huge conglomerate gets this deal and that contract, mm. and everybody knows they're mm. they're they're taking twenty percent of the money into their pension funds, etc. Their mm. shareholders. Mm. Whereas it strikes me that when you work with the voluntary sector, and I understand the issue about capacity and the issue issues around that, but when you work with the voluntary sector and you come up with schemes that are appropriate to their size, you really do get a lot for your money, don't you? I, I think it's about control. I think yeah. what government often wants, mm. the civil service as well as ministers, is to control really tightly what's going on in these services that are provided. You can do that if you've got a company that signed up to a contract and you know, mm. there's lots of money moving around and so on. You don't have the same control if you're working with a voluntary sector organisation or a faith-based organisation. Mm. And I think what government needs to be willing to do is to give up a bit of mm. control. And I think if it was willing to do that, it would find the outcomes could be considerably better than they too often have been in the past. Mm. Which takes us right back to beverage, actually, because one of the arguments from Clement Attlee's government was exactly what you just said. These local volunteers, it's not just that they're emotionally involved, it's that they're difficult. You know, volunteers are really difficult, whereas we can run this efficiently if we run it ourselves. Mm. But as you've said about the NHS, which I love and, and, and support and serve every day of my life, I hope, there's several schemes I'm working on with the NHS variously around the country at the moment. But as you said, the management, the control... So as I talk to NHS staff, senior staff, most of the time, junior staff as well, but do training for senior staff, the frustration that exists inside the thing because of the control, the management, the lack of freedom to innovate and to work with ordinary people in community. Mm. Just as a, a local community member where I live, 
at the beginning of the cost of living crisis, I put forward this idea. Now, because I travelled the country a bit talking to um, the management of hospitals around the country, I ran this idea past several of them. They all said, Steve, that is brilliant. I mean, honestly, they did say it was that's brilliant. And they added to it, actually. That's really brilliant. Oh, I wish you lived in our area. We do that in our area. I talked to the uh, hospital leaders where I live, because I know them, phoned them up. That's brilliant, Steve. That is a brilliant idea. That's it. Go for it. Here are the people you need to speak to. A year and a half after putting those ideas in, writing the papers, not one thing had happened because it all got lost in the middle in management. And I'm not blaming people. Nobody's empowered in the system. Everybody passes the buck because they're scared stiff of upsetting the person above them and then taking the blame. And the result of that system that has been created over decades by government, I guess, defend them, Stephen, you're gonna, but that system that's been created for decades, it disempowers everybody all the way up and all there, the way down. There, there is a problem, I think, about a kind of blame culture that you, and when something goes wrong, you look for somebody to blame and, and that then mm. shapes the culture of the organisation. But I think I would also say this, that coming up with practical ways to bring about these partnerships that you're describing in a way that works and is accountable to Parliament and to the public is not an easy thing to do. It's not something that you can suddenly say, oh, let's do that, it's obvious, and it'll all happen. There's quite a lot of work to be done, I think, Mm. to to look at examples where it is being done, where it has worked Mm. successfully, try and understand Mm. what the organisational principles that enable that have been, and then work to replicate that more widely in the health service and elsewhere in public Mm. services across the board. Which is why the work you've done to promote um, faith groups and their engagement, responsible engagement in communities around the countries is so important. I think a parallel example from the world of education, because you know we Oasis runs all of these schools now across the country, is what education will say about a child who it struggles with is they're difficult. That's a difficult family and that's a difficult child. What the family think and what the child thinks is that's a difficult institution. And that's where the truth is because the child may be neurodiverse and doesn't learn the way that school wants to teach. The mum, the dad, they're not form-filling type people who, uh, you know, understand this kind of academic language. They're intimidated They're wonderful people. This is a wonderful child. (laughs) This child might go on to be a world-class genius, but somehow the school system hasn't been able to adapt and work with them. And I use it as a parallel because constantly when I talk, you know, as I, I, you know, I'm in this world myself, I'm, by the way, I should say, when I'm talking about the um, government locally and nationally, at the town hall and you know the and 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 Westminster uh, working with small local communities and grassroots movements and faith groups etc I'm not really talking about oasis we're a giant charity a giant organization we can be in it and fight for ourselves 
What I know is that small charities who do brilliant work get dispossessed the whole time. So what local government will say, what national government will say, I think, is they're a bit difficult to work with all those people. Do you know all those people down there? Oh, it's really, yeah, we like control, as you said. Mm. Whereas in actual fact, the difficulty is with the people in government who keep swapping seats, you know, they swap jobs halfway through the job, they disappear, there's no handover notes, there's very little organisational memory at the centre. These, Stephen, are the pains that I live with every day of my life, they really are. But I know that I can somehow battle my way, not through them, I get stumped by them all the time, but stay in the game. But I see so many little wonderful... But I'll tell you about a community we work in. We work in this community and I go sometimes to the community groups meeting. And the truth is that each time we meet, about every six months, I wonder and they wonder if they'll all be there in six months' time. And constantly new small charities are being founded and older ones are losing their funding pot. And then they're dying. And then the imaginative leaders come back three years later when they finally get another funding pot. That's not an effective and efficient way of using public money, is it? No. The example that I think about a lot on our committee is the way we support unemployed people into work. That, I think, is a classic case where a small charity perhaps focusing on people with a particular disability or people living in a particular area can do a really effective job that that job centres just just can't. And I think there is a great deal of scope for improving services with that approach. Um, Your example from schools illustrates it, but I think how we support people into work is a a very good example as well. Uh, When Tony Blair was the Prime Minister... Uh, in a later chapter of my book, I, I talk about this. He once explained to me that the problem was before the NHS, we were in a bit of a muddle because voluntary groups and faith groups and it's, uh, small community groups around the country were left to provide all of this social infrastructure. And then with the development of the welfare state, NHS being part of it, but with the development of the welfare state, he said the the problem was it all swung the other way mm. and the government got left mm. at trying to deal with all of this. And his point was you need two parents. Yeah, you, you do need, we need the universality that comes with a welfare state. We can't have an arrangement where some bits of the country aren't covered or whatever. But we do also need to be able to engage caring individuals in the locality to support their neighbours. And that's what we're not doing a great job of at the moment. And that's what A Manifesto for Hope, my book, is all about. Thank you, Stephen, for coming in and talking.